Nehemiah chapter 6. You know, we need not look too far in our lives, in our worlds, to find people who have values that are entirely different from ours. Some of you, you go to a, a workplace and you you rub shoulders on a regular basis with those who have a value system that looks nothing like yours. Some of us, perhaps most of us, can look even within our extended families and we find, again, a group of people who have nothing of the same values that we have. You start probing for reasons for the differences and and values and standards that people have, and we come to what's been coined in our day as what's called a world view. In other words, how a person sees their world and sees the world. And so is the Christian worldview, is it is it really all that much different from from everyone else? You know, are we so unique from all the rest of the world that no one shares the same worldview that we do? Well, how does Nehemiah, that's what we're going to look at this morning, how does Nehemiah seem to to see the world in which he lives? And so we're going to look at this morning an assessment of life, or an evaluation of life by the man Nehemiah as he, again, is writing his memoirs for us. We're reading these, seeing what's taking place. We've seen him. We've seen him come through and lead the people through the through the opposition that came forth from the outside, the attacks and the threats that were made. We saw him deal with the conflict that that arose within the ranks, and now we're dealing with the attacks that come forth on a more personal basis here in Nehemiah chapter six. Begin reading with me in six, again in verse one, and we're going through verse fourteen. That came about when it was reported to Sanballat, Tobiah, to Geshem the Arab, and to the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and that no breach remained in it, although at that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, that Sanballat and Geshem sent a message to me saying, Come, let us meet together at Sepharim. And some of you have a different word or pronunciation there, different translations. Kephram uh, or Akephram or different a variety there within your different translations. Come and meet at Kephram in the in the valley in the plain of Ono. But they were planning to harm me. So I sent messengers to them saying, "I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you?" And they sent messages to me four times in this manner. And I answered them in the same way. Then Sanballat sent his servant to me in the same manner a fifth time with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, It's reported among the nations, and Gashmu says that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. Therefore, you are rebuilding the wall, and you are to be their king, according to these reports. And you've also appointed prophets to proclaim in Jerusalem concerning you. A king is in Judah. And now it will be reported to the king. Speaking here of King Artaxerxes. Now it will be reported to the king according to these reports. So come now. Let us take counsel together. Then I sent a message to him saying. Such things as you are 
saying have not been done, but you are inventing them in your own mind. For all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking they will become discouraged with the work, and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. And when I entered the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined at home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple, and let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you at night. And some have even translated, they are coming to kill you this night, tonight. But I said, should a man like me flee? And could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Then I perceived that surely God had not sent him. But he uttered his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He was hired for this reason that I might become frightened and act accordingly and sin, so that they might have an evil report in order that they could reproach me. Remember, O oh my God, Tobiah and Sanballat, according to these works of theirs, and also Noadiah the prophetess and the rest of the prophets who were trying to frighten me. There's a man named Don Richardson. He's written several books about mission, missionary encounters. And one of the books he wrote is a book entitled Peace Child. I don't know, are any of you familiar with the book Peace Child? Ever read that? Don Richardson wrote this book. It's about missionaries, a mission work actually going into uh, the area that's called Netherlands, New Guinea in the early 60s. And as he went into the area there as a missionary, he and his wife going to take the gospel to a very primitive people called the Sawi people of New Guinea. As he went in to share the gospel here, and again, looking long term of taking time of sharing the biblical story, of going through the biblical accounts of God's work through history, and he gets to the New Testament accounts about the life of Jesus Christ. And he gets to the story of Judas, and he gets to the betrayal of Judas. And what he had not realized was that among the Sawi people, that the idea of treachery and deceit was something that was had become highly praised, highly regarded amongst them. So that when he shared the story of Jesus Christ and he told the story of Judas and Judas' betrayal, Judas, in their mind, is the hero. And Judas is applauded for his treachery and Judas' kiss. Of Jesus is the ultimate expression of that treachery. How do you share the gospel in such a context? You know, we look in our world around us today, and it's not so glaringly backwards, is it? But any worldview that is devoid of a right knowledge of God will be just as wrong. Now, it may not manifest itself in such contrary notions where evil is praised. But at the same time, if we have a worldview that is devoid of a right knowledge of God, your worldview is wrong. 
how can you have a right understanding of your world and the world if you do not have a right understanding of the one ultimate issue of life? And that is God Himself. You just simply cannot do it. See, God is simply the ultimate reality. You cannot have a right interpretation, understanding of life without a right understanding, the right knowledge of God. So our worldview must be consistent with God's revelation. God has revealed Himself. And so our worldview must take into consideration His revelation. How does Nehemiah assess the world in which he lives? What is Nehemiah's worldview? We're going to look at three features of it this morning. The first thing we see in the worldview of Nehemiah, which is true for all the people of God, and it should be, if we have a right knowledge and a right understanding of the true and the living God. First of all, Nehemiah sees in in his world, there is the futility of the godless. The futility of the godless. See, all that we see in Nehemiah in the way of steadfastness. As we've looked at his story coming to Nehemiah chapter 1 and the following chapters there, we've seen him standing. We've seen him as one who is steadfast. We see him as one who is determined. But at the same time, we also see that he is matched almost step by step by his godless enemies. Those who are determined to oppose him. Those who are determined to stop his progress. Well, who are the godless? How do we define godless? Simply this way. A godless person is a person who has no knowledge. No knowledge of the true and the living God. And he is opposed to God's purposes. And it's as evidenced here in the scriptures as we see in the story of Nehemiah. Evidenced by opposition to God's people. Now, we've seen the opposition through the chapters here. We've seen the things that, that Sanballat and Tobiah and company, they brought up against them. We, we saw them mocking. They just simply came first and started just mocking and ridiculing. You know, let's discourage them just by the words that we say. Then they came because that didn't seem to be working very well. They came making threats, threats which had to be taken seriously. Threats of coming in and infiltrating. Threats of coming in and doing physical harm to the people as they worked. And so the people had to adjust and they they prepared themselves at the walls. They had armed soldiers while those continued to work upon the wall. We see the the enemies conspiring together. We looked at the four on the north and the south and the east and the west. Those those four groups surrounding, conspiring together to to stop the advancing of God's purposes in the building of the wall in Jerusalem. What do we see here? We see here, as Nehemiah has recounted the story, we see the enemies of God thwarted on every occasion. Futility. The futility of the godless. And then we come here into chapter 6. We see the continued opposition. And this time it's directed toward Nehemiah personally. They realize that you know, the people are set. The people are working. This is going to be done. We just simply have to get to the main man. Let's deal with Nehemiah. Let's get him out of the picture. And everything else will fall apart. And so they begin to attack. First of all, they come with the threat of physical attack. Not, and not articulated it that way. But they're trying to get 
Nehemiah to come out and to meet them. Verse 2, Sanballat and Geshem, they sent the message to be saying, Come, let's meet together at Kephram in the plain of on Ono. You know, some places just don't sound right. <laughs> you know, this is one of those places. Meet us at Ono or Ono. And, you know, Nehemiah saying, Ono, Ono. <laughs> we will not. It's like a... The time when the children of Israel, they went to the wilderness of, as translated in English, the wilderness of sin. <laughs> Guess what happened? Yeah, they sinned. This one of those meetings, it just didn't sound right. Come and meet us at the, at the plain of Ono or Ono. And he says, but they were planning to harm me. And so they're persistent. They come with, they send four occasions. Send this same message. Come on, we need to meet together. Let's work out our differences. Something along those lines, but to try to draw Nehemiah out of the safety of the of the city of Jerusalem, and rather than antagonize, rather than making just accusations against them, Nehemiah just simply responds, "You know, I'm busy, guys." Verse three. You know, I'm doing a great work, and I can't come because if I come, it's not going to be just me. It's going to be people coming with me. A lot of the work, the work's going to slow down here. We're about a task, and it's not done. We're staying on task. So they come with the. The hope of, of a physical attack against his well-being, against just his body, his, his own self. That doesn't work, so they come with a character attack. Verse 5. Sanballat sent his servant to me in the same manner a fifth time with what? An open letter in his hand. And we see the contents of that open letter. It was written charging that Nehemiah is up to no good. He's going to set himself up as a king. He's already got prophets established so that at the right time, the prophets are going to say, which the prophets are seen as the representatives of God, what they say is true. They're going to say, we have a king in Judah, and it's Nehemiah. And that this letter was sent, as an, it's called an open letter. It was, this letter was sent not to personally to Nehemiah, so Nehemiah, you need to read this. But it was a letter that was sent, already opened, whoever Sanballat and company wanted to see the contents they had seen. So the idea conveyed is this. By the time that Nehemiah receives this letter, the rumors are already rampant. It's already spread. In other words, he's having to deal with an issue that he's the last to know. Because you can rest assured that Sanballat and company have sent their troops, their people, to spread the word. This is what's going on here. So the rumors are out. And Nehemiah's got to defend himself against simply lies. And then we see a spiritual attack. Verses 10 through 13. When he goes into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah who is confined at home, and this, this man who's as a prophet, he says, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us close the doors of the temple. And this next part is kind of like the prophetic. If you look in your English Bibles, many of the newer translations, uh, like in the, the letters, the prophets, they're written in almost verse. You know, they're not just, you know, sentence, line after line. After line. It's kind of a verse style, like poetry or something like that. And that's the way this was stated. So he says this, to Nehemiah, he says, let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you tonight. It's kind of like a, a little chant to it. The prophetic manner in which a message is conveyed. But there is a... There's something amiss here. 
he says there in verses 12 and 13 that he, I perceived that surely God had not sent him, but he had uttered his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. In other words, he was not a true prophet. He was not interested in bringing protection. He encourages Nehemiah to, fly, to flee for safety into the temple. Do two things. Number one, it would show that Nehemiah was actually a coward after all. You can't trust this guy. The going gets tough. He's going, to, he's going to protect himself. He's not really concerned about you. But it would also demonstrate a great spirit of irreverence. Because what's indicated here is this, this man is saying to, to Nehemiah, you need to go into the holy place. The place where only God's priests are permitted to enter. That's where you need to go for safety and for refuge. And Nehemiah realizes there's something amiss here. Can't do that. So again, how successful were these new tactics? They were stopped. The futility. The futility of the godless. Those who intended to bring physical harm. Come and meet with us. Not a chance. And again, not at a place like, oh no, anyway... But when they come and they attack his character. Here's the rumors, Nehemiah. You're going to have to deal with these. Let's get together. Let's talk about this. You know, we can speak on your behalf. You know, we can deny with you such rumors. And Nehemiah's response is just very simply a clear denial. I mean, what else can he do? You know, we know the damage of, of rumors that take off and, you know... Such as our society today, if rumor takes off, you do a lot of damage. And many times it cannot be undone. He simply denies it. Simply allows his proven track record of character to speak for itself. And so he just responds, verse 8, These things you're saying, it's not true. This hasn't been done. None of this has been done. You're inventing them in your own mind. See the value there of having a good name and a good reputation. He can simply speak. This isn't true. And I'll let my record speak for itself. And when they come with the spiritual attacks, go and protect yourself. Hide yourself in the temple, the holy place. He will not do it. In fact, that proves to be the thing that exposes Shemaiah for what he is. One who's been hired by Sanballat and Tobiah as a false messenger. God's enemies here. You know, they come, they have quite an arsenal, don't they? They're creative. I mean, they are, it's like they are pulling all the stops here. Let's just go at him from, this doesn't work, let's try something else. And here they come, time after time. A variety of methods of attack. And they see they only prosper to the degree that they are allowed by God Himself and then to accomplish His purposes. Isn't it something of a a broad stroke to say that the life of the godless is futile? I mean, can't we all consider people that we've known that, you know, in reality, they weren't godly people. They didn't know the Lord, and yet they seem to do so well. They seem to to prosper. And the reality is that they prosper only to the degree as God allows. And even then, even then, 
so that he might accomplish his purposes. And yes, there may be seasons. There may be even what we look at as a as a life that accomplishes much in the way of success. But at the same time, it's a life that is one of futility. It's a futility of a godless life. It's marked by direct opposition, as we see here in our text. Those who are clearly opposed to God, those who reveal, manifest themselves in opposition to God by being opposed to what God clearly desires to accomplish. But sometimes the godless life is, not, is not, nowhere near that blatant. Sometimes the godless life is simply one that lives in disregard for God. Oh, they're not raising the fist against God. They're not out defying God. They're not worshiping false gods. But nor are they acknowledging the true and the living God. It's a godless life. It's to live one's life as though there is no God. And as though there is no revelation of God's will. Why is it futile? Again, isn't that kind of a broad stroke? You're painting with a broad brush, aren't you? To say that the godless life is a futile life? No, because to live a godless life, no matter how moral, no matter how good it may be, to live a godless life is to miss the very purpose for which we have been created, and that is to actively bring glory to Him and to have our hearts to delight in Him. We know that God will work to bring glory into His own name. He will do that even through His enemies, but that will be accomplished through them passively. God brought honor and glory to His name through Pharaoh. But Pharaoh was passive in that. One of the highest purpose is to join in with God and to be actively desiring and working to bring glory to God in our lives. That's our purpose. To bring glory to Him. And to delight our hearts in Him. That's why we're here. And to live a life that fails to do that is a life of futility. It's to miss the mark. It's to miss the reason for which we've been created. So any success that we may experience or even any degree of satisfaction in life that we may have is short-lived because it misses the ultimate reality. And that is God Himself. So we must not be tempted your brothers and sisters to be drawn into that because sometimes, to be honest with you, it does look pleasing. It does look easy. It does look successful. It does look as though the, as the psalmist tells us, that the wicked do prosper. And they do on occasion. To a degree. But we must understand the ultimate plight. That they are, their feet are set in slippery places, the Scripture tells us. So that that success or that satisfaction of that life will be, be brought to an end. But likewise, may we see the futility of the godless life and may that give some unction to our outreach as we share the gospel with men and women that we need to proclaim that to the message that, that they're working against God. You're working against the purposes of God if you are living your life without a knowledge of God. futile the best of lives without 
a knowledge of the true and the living God is a futile, empty, meaningless life. We also see the fruitfulness of the godly. As Nehemiah sees his world, there's the fruitfulness of the godly. There's a stark contrast here between the godless enemies and the godly man, Nehemiah. Is there not? We see that all through the book here as we've read along. Nehemiah, he has experienced success at every step. The enemies of God, they've been thwarted time after time after time. But Nehemiah, as he sought to come, he received commissioning by the king to go forth. So he came there, not simply as a lame, but he came as one with authority. He could come with, with a degree of, of leadership and get things done. He came and he spoke to the people. He examined the walls and he inspired the people. They were moved to action. They just didn't dismiss him. Again, success in what he desired to accomplish. He led in the stand against the enemies, against their mockings and against their threatenings. So the people stood strong. He brought resolution to the internal conflicts that rose up within the ranks of the people themselves and threatened the unity. And here he counters the personal attacks that are brought against him. So he was not going to be duped into a meeting of questionable purposes. He's not going to be forced to act against wisdom because of the lies that are being spread. He's willing, again, to let his proven record of character speak for itself. And he's not going to be lured into sin by going into the temple to protect himself. Why is this? Nehemiah is a man, he's blessed. He's blessed with keen insight, with courage, and with steadfast devotion to God. We're not here to praise this man, Nehemiah. We're here to speak of the grace of God at work in His people. Why do we see this happening? Why is this man this way? Because God has graced him. God has given him wisdom. God has given him insight. And God has a purpose to fulfill. God's purpose was that the walls of Jerusalem were to be rebuilt. God's plan was it be accomplished. Nehemiah was simply his agent. His means. And Nehemiah's life bears the fruitfulness. The fruitfulness of a godly life. Now is the fruitfulness measured in terms of successful endeavors? We touched a little bit on this this morning even in... In the Sunday school. You know, the fact of the matter is we can look at Nehemiah and he is quite successful. It's kind of like, you know, he's got the Midas touch. Everything he puts his hand on, it turns to gold. He can do no wrong. Is that how we measure success? Because that, everything he tries, it works? No, the answer to that is yes and no. Yes, in the sense that we know his successes here, even as he is acknowledged to us time after time after time, they can be attributed to godliness and his walk with God. He knows the will of God. However, the answer is also no. We do not always measure success by whether or not the endeavors we have begun are accomplished. Now, fruitfulness must be measured by other standards. Now, there are many times that God is working in our lives to develop other things. He is working to develop godliness within us. He is working that He might help us to grow in grace. He is working to develop character. Ultimately, it's this. He is developing within us Christ-likeness. 
so we live in a world and sometimes we experience the we experience the reality of being in a fallen world. The things that we plan, they don't pan out. And it's not that we sinned in doing them, but they didn't pan out. It didn't work. Is that a success? Or is it a failure? Is it fruitful? Well, if it accomplishes the work of developing Christ's likeness within us, it's fruitful. Now, it may not have the it may not have the success sign as the world would place success. It may not have the, the dollar signs at the end if it's a business or if it's a, if it's a career change or whatever. But in God's eyes, if it's developing that which He desires to accomplish within us, it's accomplishing His purposes. If it's developing Christ's likeness within us, it's fruitful. And how do we look at a man like Job? man who, who lost all of his possessions. A man who's described to us as one who feared God. A man who, who hated evil. But he lost his possessions. He lost his family, his children. He lost his health. He lost respect among people. Is that a fruitful life? What do you think? <laughs> well, get to the last chapter. Yeah, there's some fruit. It's a fruitful, fruitful life. What of, as we focus each week upon our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world? Fruitful lives? Probably more fruitful than ours. As we see Christ's likeness in the entering in with in a participation in the sufferings of Christ that we know nothing of. It's fruitful. Turn with me real quick to Hebrews chapter 11. Keep your finger in Nehemiah. We're coming back. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 11 verse beginning with verse 32 this is the some call it the hall of faith Christian saints and the writer of Hebrews has gone through and just listed a number of the Old Testament saints and how by faith there were great things done. Look what he says in verse 32. This is kind of a... All right, I'm going to get just kind of wind things up here. And what more shall I say? For the time will fail me if I tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson, Jephthah, David and Samuel and the prophets. It's kind of a mixed bag there, isn't it? <laughs> verse 33. Who by faith they conquered kingdoms. What do we see here? Fruitfulness in terms of success. They conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness... They obtained promises. They shut the mouths of lions. Man, what a hall of fame here. They quenched the power of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. From weakness they were made strong. Became mighty in war. They put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Man, what a success. <clears throat> and then he just keeps going. Verse 35. And others, he just didn't miss a lick here. Others were tortured, not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others, they experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy. Well, what do you think here? Fruitful till you get to the last half of 35? And then things kind of start falling apart? 
fruitful. This is the hall of faith. In the hall of faith, yes, there have been mighty things done according to the will of God. There have been women who received their children back from the dead. There have been the, the stopping of armies. Read through the, some of the Old Testament stories of the, the miraculous interventions of God. But also, be aware of the times that there were no miraculous interventions. But the life is just as fruitful. Because there were other things developed. Other things accomplished within the hearts of men and women who did not experience release or deliverance. And we see that in the church today around the world. Now I've become more and more convinced of the excellence of the Christian life. And I'm not talking about just because I, I, I like its moral position. It's there, but that's not what I mean. But to live with a knowledge of the true and the living God. To understand that there is a God. And that that God has revealed Himself. I mean, if He is a God, doesn't He want us to know something of Him, Himself? He's revealed Himself. He's given us revelation. But as a child of God, as a follower of Jesus Christ, to live with the assurance to know that all of my transgressions, all of my sin, all of my rebellion committed against God has been forgiven. Not because he just simply looked and he wiped off the slate and said, I like you, we'll start over. No, but because he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come and to take that sin upon himself and he bear the wrath of God for it. And his righteousness, his perfection given to me. I don't think you can beat that. I'm convinced of the excellence of the Christian life. There is no other religion because there is nothing else that comes from God to men that can speak of assurance of forgiveness from our sin because God has acted on our behalf. To live a life with a truly significant Ambition to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's a significant ambition. Anything short of that is nothing. Fruitfulness is guaranteed and it's measured by the standard of God's purposes. If He wills to accomplish it, it will be done. And His ultimate will is this. His name is to be honored. And if His name is honored, if His name is honored, I'm fruitful. If His name is honored, the fruitfulness of the godly. It's not always measured in terms of success. As we, we do see that in the hands of Nehemiah. Many times it is. God does great things because God wants to accomplish great things. But sometimes it's through means that the world looks, looks at and says, that's an absolute waste. That's a failure. 
by God's standard is not. Because he has the prerogative of accomplishing other things in his people. And finally, the world according to Nehemiah, life as Nehemiah sees it, is the faithfulness of God. So this is the overarching truth that assures us that the godless life is a futile life and the godly life is a fruitful life. And that is that God is faithful. God is true to His Word. God is true to His people. And His faithfulness has been on display throughout this book. Again, from the very first message from Nehemiah chapter 1, I told you, the book of Nehemiah is not about... It's not about a hero named Nehemiah. It's about the hero named God. God's the hero. And the faithfulness of God has been demonstrated throughout this book. Nehemiah's memoirs, they force force us to consider that God is faithful. God is working. God is good. He continually puts it to the forefront. So success after success is simply for, for Nehemiah. An opportunity to focus upon the Lord. You know, where do you see Nehemiah come to the place and, and he says, well, you know, I did some great things here. Even those things that we would look at and say, yeah, he, he's got room to take a little bit of credit here. He refuses to do so. But to recognize that it's the faithfulness of God. Why is he so deliberate in that? Why is Nehemiah so deliberate on placing the glory of God on display throughout this book because in the mind of Nehemiah, the glory of God is displayed in all of life. Listen. Contrary to what many people believe, the faithfulness of God is not on trial. You know, we're not trying to determine day by day, is God faithful or is He not? Is He going to come through or is He not? It's not on trial. He's not on trial. He is faithful. Now, faithfulness sometimes will not appear as we might think. Now, there have been times that we I've thought, Oh, God, I need you to do this. And you know what? He didn't do it. Is God faithful? Yes. Because He worked through other means. And He did other things. His faithfulness is not on trial. You know, for the godly here, He, see, he says in verse 9, as he's opposed here, hand on hand, we see in his prayer here. For all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking they will become discouraged with the work and it will not be done. Where do you go? What do you do? How do you deal with this, Nehemiah? Pretty simple. <laughs> he just prays. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. I come to you, O oh Lord. God is faithful for the godly. He is the source of strength. That when we need that grace to persevere, we need that grace to simply keep on keeping on. He's faithful. <coughs> but He's also faithful for the godless. Verse 14. Again, another prayer. Remember, O oh my God. It's another one of those imprecatory prayers. <laughs> Remember, O oh my God, Tobiah and Sanballat. He's not asking for blessing on them either. According to these works of theirs, and also Noadiah, the prophetess, and the rest of the prophets who are trying to frighten me. What's he saying here? 
God, you remember these and you reward them justly according to what they've done. See, in the mind of Nehemiah, God is faithful for the godless as well. The faithfulness of God is, will He judge the sins of men or not? Will He or not? Well, we know that He will. And the reason we know that God will judge the sins of all men is because He's judged the sins of a multitude of people in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why else would God pour out His wrath on His dearly beloved Son? It was because it was a wrath, it was a judgment that was due upon men. And He knew that they could not bear it and have any hope of life beyond that. So the cross of Jesus Christ is a reminder to us. God will judge all men's sin. And so for Nehemiah, he just simply says, what do the godless have to fear? Now who's going to hold them accountable? The answer to that is God. And so the reality is, God in His faithfulness leaves every individual with an option. You may pay the penalty for your own sin. You may stand before God on the day that you die and make payment for your own sin and endure His wrath. Or, you may recognize that someone has died for you. That your sin has been placed on someone else. And that you may live. If you bow the knee to Jesus Christ. That's the faithfulness of God. He's faithful in the daily encounters, the daily life here, but He is faithful to His Word. And His Word tells us this, that there is life, there is forgiveness found in Jesus Christ. There is a day of accounting, there is a day of judgment for those who do not find refuge in Him. Either Christ will pay for your sin or you shall pay yourself. That's it. So there's the worldview. The futility of the godless. The fruitfulness of the godly. The faithfulness of God. Is that yours? Is that your view of the world? Is that your view of life? Is that your view of your world? Uh, your world is simply a subset of God's. And this is what is revealed to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to You that we can know that there is forgiveness, there is deliverance from the penalty of our sin in Christ. Thank You that as your children, that we can testify that you have delivered us from that life of emptiness and futility. Brought us to a life of fruitfulness. And well, many times we've wondered and questioned whether or not that was really taking place. But again, we trust your word. We trust the work of sanctification in your Holy Spirit. And that you are accomplishing your work of conformness to your Son. And we thank you for your faithfulness. 
And we thank you for the for the sweet sweetness of that, that we see the sweet side of your faithfulness, but also, Lord, we come mindful of the the frightening side of that. That you're true to your word. And that we find refuge in Christ or we have no refuge and we stand naked before you alone. Lord, speak to our hearts. Apply your word as you will. In Jesus' name, amen.